God, we gather in the name of Jesus, and it is by his authority that we uh, come to you here this morning. And God, we ask that you would reveal who this Jesus is to us. God, I pray that you would reveal how Jesus is the light and the life. God, I pray that in this uh, next couple of moments together, Lord, that you would grow our desires for Jesus, God, that we would see him maybe in a new light today or maybe in a greater depth. So God, I pray that you would help us to just put to the side different distractions that are bombarding our hearts even in this moment. God, make room in our hearts to feast upon the person and the work of Jesus. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Well, let's say that you find yourself in the following situation. So you have a burden for your neighbors in your neighborhood, and you begin to think through, how can I love my neighbors? How can I serve them? And so you begin to to pray for them. You're thinking through ways of how you can show them the love of Christ. And in your praying, let's say the Lord puts a burden on your heart to start a Bible study with those neighbors in your neighborhood. And so you pray about it, and you send the invitations out to those neighbors, and maybe surprisingly, but Uh, with great excitement, a lot of neighbors respond and say, yeah, I'd like to do that. And in your enthusiasm, you notice that you have both a seasoned saint who's coming to your Bible study, someone who's been walking with the Lord for decades, and then also you have some neighbors who know nothing about Christianity. They've never opened up the Bible, they've never stepped foot in the church, and on one hand, that's really exciting. You've got these two groups of people And yet, on the other hand, you are now faced with a dilemma. What book of the Bible are you going to select that can both speak to the seasoned saint and to the spiritual seeker? I wonder what you would say this morning uh, to that question. If you asked me this morning, I would definitely direct you to the Gospel of John. Excuse me, the Gospel of John. Uh, The Gospel of John is maybe one of the most unique books of the Bible because of the way that John uh, portrays Jesus. That his unique presentation is, uh, is absolutely fascinating when you look through all of these different images and symbolism throughout this great book. That the book of John has the ability to connect with the spiritual seeker, but also with the agnostic. It has the ability to connect with the mature believer, someone who's been walking with the Lord for decades, and also the struggling believer, someone who's going through maybe a dry spell. In fact, it was St. Augustine, the great church father, who said this about the Gospel of John, that John's Gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. This book, no matter where you are on the spectrum of Christianity, whether you would consider yourself mature or maybe you're here today and you know nothing about Christianity, this is the perfect book for you. Now, one of my hopes as we travel through the Gospel of John together is that our knowledge and our affections for Jesus grow larger and larger. Like, I don't, I don't just want us to have more head knowledge about who Jesus is as we travel through this book, but I want, I want our desires to grow larger and larger. I'm reminded of this scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, that I hope that we as a congregation experience something similar There's a scene between Lucy and Aslan. Aslan is the symbol of Christ. And it goes something like this. Aslan says, welcome, child. And Lucy says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that is because you are older, little one. And she says, not because you are. And he says, I am not, 
but every year you grow, you find me bigger. Now, I want that same experience for us where we find Jesus just a little bit bigger in our desires and in our, our comprehension of who he is, not because he has changed, not because he has grown, but because we have changed, because we have grown. Like I want us to, to see things in this book about Jesus that maybe we've not seen before, or maybe we're just seeing it in a greater depth. And I want us to be stunned. I want us to be in awe of the greatness of Jesus as we travel through uh, this book together. Are you excited? I'm excited to dive in. This is always a, a challenge for me when I begin a new book because I've done all this study. I'm like, all right, what do I need to say in the first sermon here? So what we're going to do, I'm going to provide an introduction to the book, talk a little bit about the author, the date, the setting, and then some distinctives about the Gospel of John that I think are unique and helpful. And then we'll also look at the first five verses at five realities of Christ that we need to understand that will shape the rest of our time together in the Gospel of John. Okay, you with me? All right, here's a little bit about the background. Uh, The author is John, who is one of the apostles, one of the disciples of Christ. He wrote uh, a few other New Testament books, like 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, uh, along with Revelation. And John was a unique disciple in that he was kind of part of the inner circle. He and Peter and James, they were kind of part of this inner niche with Jesus, and they had uh, maybe a deeper intimacy with him than the, than the rest of the disciples. And I say that because that's actually going to come through as we study the gospel of John. There is this warm affection that John has for Jesus that he wants us to pick up on. Well, not only that, but this book has been written, was written around 80 AD, uh, definitely after the, the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. And John wrote this most likely at Ephesus in Asia. <clears throat> now, when you compare John to the other Gospels, it is quite unique. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are uh, known as the Synoptic Gospels because the way that they portray Jesus, they basically have a similar view of Jesus throughout their work. That Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they kind of share many of the same stories and even uh, portray the same sequence of Jesus' life and ministry. Well, John is not that way at all. John is not trying to give us a comprehensive summary of Jesus' life and ministry. He's not trying to include every detail about his life. What is motivating John is he's trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? And he answers that question by showing us that he is the true son of God, that that is the driving force of this letter. In fact, there are different Um, emphasis throughout each of the Gospels that shape the way that they write and the perspective that they have of Jesus. You probably have picked up on this as you've read the different Gospels. They're all kind of written a little bit differently. Matthew tends to highlight Jesus's kingship, trying to show that Jesus is the king of kings. Mark tends to highlight Jesus's servanthood, that he is the true uh, servant. And then Luke shows the manhood of Jesus. He highlights kind of the humanity of Christ. Well, for John, John emphasizes Jesus's godhood. Again, he wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's some other distinctives about John's gospel that I think are helpful. Again, these are kind of uh, goggles that I want you to wear as we study through uh, the gospel of John of how we should see uh, his great work. Here's number one. What we're going to see is that John emphasizes 
symbolic discourse rather than narrative parables. Okay, we're not going to get a lot of, of monologue teachings from John. Uh, he's not going to be before the crowds, uh, uh, kind of going through different parables. But instead, John actually focuses on these long discourses that he has with different individuals. And these conversations, these uh, kind of sayings are filled with imagery and symbolism that shows us about Jesus' identity at God. You'll notice when you read the other Gospels, there are these concise, short sayings about who Jesus is. That's not John at all. John's a little bit more long-winded, and he wants to kind of grab you and pull you into the narrative. And we'll see that throughout uh, this year. Secondly, another thing to highlight about a distinctive of John is his emphasis on teaching on eternal life rather than the kingdom of God. Now, for John, he loves this theme of eternal life. In fact, he talks about life over 36 times throughout his work. And when you compare that to the other Gospels, that's more than twice than all of the other Gospels combined. Okay, so eternal life is a huge dominant theme for the Apostle John. Now, kingdom of God, not so much. He only talks about the kingdom of God five times throughout his work. And when you compare that to the other Gospels, you've got kingdom of God showing up 55 times in Matthew, 20 times in Mark, and 46 times in Luke. Okay, so John is trying to show us what eternal life is all about. Thirdly, another emphasis that I want you to see is, and this is fascinating, but uh, John shows us and emphasizes these relational settings and personal uh, conversations. John is unique because he shows us these long scenes of Jesus just kind of hanging out with people. Like there's no, there's no rush for John getting Jesus from one place to the next, unlike Mark. Mark is pretty uh, fast-paced in his writing. But also throughout John, we've got these long conversations with uh, like John the Baptist, for example, that don't show up in the other uh, Gospels. You've got Jesus just kind of lounging and hanging out with the disciples in chapters 13 through 17 in the upper room. However, what we don't have in John, we don't have the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have his transfiguration. We don't have the institution of the Lord's Supper. We don't have his actual baptism or casting out demons. Yet John is more concerned about uh, kind of this personal aspect of Jesus. Like he wants us to see, yes, Jesus is God. Yes, he is the Son of God and the promised Messiah. But this is a God that you can talk to. This is a God that you can have a relationship with and interact with. And he does that through highlighting different conversations that he has with different individuals. And then the fourth thing I want us to to know before we uh, jump into the introduction here is the focus more on theology rather than history. Uh, John doesn't provide a lot of historical context or the setting. Uh, Sometimes we're going to feel like, hey, where are we in this? Geographically, where are we? He doesn't provide a lot of those details. Rather, he highlights different theological topics uh, that at times are quite dense. We're going to look at uh, different doctrines, such as the doctrine of the Trinity and the election, or uh, doctrine of election, eschatology, or the end times. We're going to look at the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at salvation and the substitutionary uh, atonement. Now, don't worry if, if, you, if some of those terms uh, lost you. We're going to take a, a kind of a, a walk through each of those as we walk through uh, the book of John and unpack each of them. But the one 
doctrine that I want to highlight for us, because it's most important in the Gospel of John, is Christology. Christology is the nature and the work of Christ as God, and this is the driving force of John's Gospel. John seeks to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God and the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. In fact, only in the Gospel of John do we have Jesus who is explicitly identified with God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you notice, there aren't as many explicit statements about Jesus being God. It's rather assumed or it's, uh, it's said by other people besides Jesus himself. But here in John, Jesus is going to outright claim that, that he is God. In fact, let me show you three ways that John shows us that Jesus is God that are quite unique to the gospel of John and his work. Number one, John shows us that Jesus is God through the words of Jesus and specifically the seven I am statements throughout this gospel. Now, if you've ever read John or, you, or you've read the gospels, these I am statements are quite popular. Uh, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gates. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. What John is doing in each of those claims, he's, those are God claims that Jesus is making uh, as John shows us the deity of Christ, and those are quite unique for John. Secondly, another way that John shows us that Jesus is God is through the works of Jesus, or the seven miraculous signs uh, that we see specifically in chapters 2 through 11. Again, some of these miracles, they don't show up in the other Gospels. These are unique to John himself. For example, the changing water into wine, the first miracle of Jesus, the temple cleansing in chapter 2, the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4, the healing of the lame man in chapter 5, the feeding of the multitude in chapter 6, the healing of the blind man in chapter 9, and raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. These are the seven signs that John uses to show us that only God can actually do these things, and this God is Jesus Christ. Now, the third way, and the last thing that I'll point out about ways that John shows us that Jesus is God, and I think this is the most fascinating, is that John uses these different individuals, and, and I'll call them witnesses. He kind of uses them as witnesses as a device in order to make definitive statements about Jesus' identity as the Son of God. This is absolutely brilliant uh, by John, absolutely a masterpiece writing, because if you notice, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it almost feels like Jesus is the one who is on trial all throughout the Gospels, and that Jesus is constantly trying to defend himself about who he is, about why he came. If you notice, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's defending himself against the crowds and the religious leaders and even the disciples and, and Pontius Pilate, even his own family at times, but not so much in John. John actually reverses it, and he puts the world on trial. He puts the world on trial and calls before us these different individuals to testify about who Jesus actually is. A couple of those witnesses are John the Baptist the woman at the well, Nicodemus, the blind man in chapter 9, Martha, and, and then the disciples, and, and many others. And what John does is he, he uses these individuals as witnesses to, to do the talking for him and for Jesus. 
And it's absolutely brilliant because one thing that we'll notice as we get to know these different individuals, we're going to be forced to say, man, I, I relate a lot to this person. I relate well to the woman at the well, or I relate well to Nicodemus or, or to the, the blind man in chapter 9. And, and, and as I connect with these different characters and I'm hearing and watching them make these claims about Jesus, John is putting the question before us, if this person is identifying Jesus as God, do you? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Because the woman at the well does. If you can relate to her story, are you taking that next leap and also believing the claims that they are making? It's brilliant. He he draws us into the narrative of his great work. Now, John does all of that. He emphasizes Christology of Christ because of his explicit purpose that he states in John chapter 20. Write John chapter 20 down, John 20, verses 30 and 31. Here we have uh, the purpose of why John wrote this book. <clears throat> John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what John wants us to know, he doesn't want us to guess why he wrote. He doesn't want us to guess why he selected certain miracles and certain words of Jesus. He comes out and he says, look, I am trying to provide a rock-solid case for why you should believe in Jesus and give your life to him. That these things that I tell you about Jesus should not be things that cause you to be complacent as it relates to who Jesus is, but I'm trying to move you towards belief and surrendering your life in who Jesus actually is. See, one thing that we're going to see as we travel through this is that there is no room for apathy as it relates to knowing who Jesus actually is. The way that he writes this, you cannot conclude, oh, who cares? Like, that's, that's kind of interesting, but not really interesting. I'm going to go and live my life. John leaves no room for that. In fact, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that when you study who Jesus is in the Gospels, you only have three reactions to Jesus. Number one, you conclude that Jesus is a liar, that he's not telling the truth in here. Or number two, you conclude that Jesus is a lunatic, that he's absolutely crazy. Or number three, you conclude that Jesus is Lord. And if he actually is Lord, if he is the King of Kings, if he is who he says he is, then you should believe upon his name and give your life in following after him. There's no room for apathy as we travel through this book because Jesus is going to be exalted and we are going to be wowed and stunned at all that we see at the Son of God. Now I say that because uh, some of us in this room are not yet believers, that some of us are not Christians yet. I want you to know that as we move through this book, you are going to be called to believe in Jesus, that you are going to be called to find your life in who Jesus is and what he has done for you on the cross. And I pray that that happens. I pray that you give your life in following after Jesus. But I also say this because for us who are Christians and who are believers, we need to continue to believe in Jesus each and every day because of the trials that we face because of the temptations that we go through, and because of the darkness that's still in our lives, that belief in Jesus has the tendency to be choked out because of life. 
And so as we move through this passage and we see all kinds of things about who Jesus is, I'm praying that our belief in Jesus grows stronger, that our affections grow louder as we follow Jesus and learn to make him the king of our lives. So I'm really excited about this book. I can't wait to, to see all these things that we're going to see about Jesus. Let's get to the, um, to the introduction now. First five verses, John wastes no time in getting to who Jesus actually is. And we're going to look at these first five verses. In fact, the first 18 verses are known as John's prologue. This is kind of his introduction. And the way that I want us to view the prologue, I want us to view it almost like we're standing in the foyer of the mansion of John's gospel. Okay, we're kind of standing in the lobby. And what John is going to do in the introduction here is he's going to show us these important themes that we're going to later see in each room of the mansion of John's gospel. Okay, this introduction is not random, but he's kind of tipping his hands. He's giving us a foretaste of some of the most important themes that will show up in almost every passage of the book of John. That we'll see themes such as light and life and darkness and witness and belief and glory and truth, and the deity of Christ, and the oneness of the Father. These are almost interpretive clues for how we are to read the rest of the Gospel of John. Okay, so five things that John wants us to know about Jesus as he shapes kind of the beginning of this book. Number one, Jesus is eternally pre-existent. Jesus is eternally pre-existent. Looking at the first phrase of verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word. I just want to stop there for a moment. Um, Obviously, reading this first phrase, reading these first couple of verses, we learn that John's intro, his opening, is very unique compared to the other Gospels. That there's no mention of the genealogy of Jesus. There's no information about his birth. There's no information about his upbringing. Rather, John takes us to eternity past, prior to creation, and he shows us that Jesus was there. Now, ultimately, with this first phrase, John is claiming the pre-existence of Jesus. Then verse 2, he reiterates the same point, and he says that he, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. What John wants us to know is that Jesus did not come into existence when he was born as a baby in the manger some 2,000 years ago. But the one who came and revealed who God is and what he is like here on earth is the one who was always with God from the very beginning. There was never a time in which Jesus did not exist. In fact, the, the tense that John writes this first phrase in is in the imperfect, meaning it is a continual. So in other words, you, you actually could translate this first phrase, although it would be somewhat awkward, you could translate it as Jesus was always wasing. Okay, Jesus was always continuing. All right? Or as Colossians 1.17 says, Jesus is before all things, the preexistence of Christ. Now, the way that he writes this, it almost feels like he's retelling the creation account. I don't know if you noticed that, but the in the beginning kind of formula is on purpose. This should be a trigger for us to take us back to Genesis 1, and yet what we quickly uh, see is that John is actually proclaiming something of greater value than the creation of the world. 
that what he's proclaiming and announcing is not the creation of the world, but something better. He's actually pronouncing the incarnation of the word, that the word actually became flesh and dwelt among us. This is very significant. In fact, one commentary put it this way, that the opening of John's gospel establishes a connection between God's act of creation through his word and his act of providing salvation through the incarnate word, who is Jesus. So John's trying to make a connection here. And in addition, what you see in Genesis chapter 1 is the author seems to be more interested in the action of God rather than God's being or the existence of God. I don't know if you've picked up on that in Genesis 1. The existence of God is almost assumed as you read Genesis 1. The focus, rather, is more on what God did, that God made the heavens and the earth. Well, here in John chapter 1, there's not so much a focus on the action of God or the action of Jesus, but on on Jesus' being, who Jesus actually was. He says, in the beginning was the Word, that the Word was with God, the Word was God. Again, he's trying to show us who is Jesus by claiming that there was never a time in which he did not exist. Okay, you'll even notice that the word word is capitalized there. It refers to Jesus. That the word is a title that's given by John to Jesus that is quite unique. John could have used different words here to talk about Jesus. He could have said, in the beginning was the Son. In the beginning was the Messiah. In the beginning was the Most High God. Yet he chooses word very intentionally. He uses word as kind of a, a Christological umbrella so that he can throw in underneath all of these other terms about who Jesus is that we will later learn throughout this gospel. That the word has the ability to hold, almost like a bucket, the terms Son of God and the Messiah and the Most High God and the Great Rabbi. That the word is something that is pre-existent to where we find ourselves in the first century of Jesus coming to the earth. Now, the reason for that, the reason why this is significant is because throughout Scripture, we see God's Word is the vehicle for divine action, that the Word of God is connected with God's powerful activity in creation, God's powerful activity in revelation, and even in deliverance, that God simply speaks and His powerful Word creates. Okay, we see that all throughout the Bible. And so what John is doing here, John personifying the word as Jesus, puts color on the existence of Jesus as the full revelation of God's power and deliverance. And he can do that because of the pre-existence of Christ, that Jesus was with God from the very beginning. Okay, you guys with me? That was the deep end, all right? Let's move on to number two here. Second thing that John wants us to see is that Jesus has eternally been in relationship with God. Moving now, again, as we stand in the foyer of John's gospel, if you look at the second phrase in verse 1, John says, and the word was with God. Okay, if you want to have a pen or something, you want to circle the word with, it's a very important preposition. That the word with in Greek is commonly translated as to or toward. 
It communicates a, a closeness, a, a nearness, a sense of movement toward uh, something else. And so what John is trying to communicate for us is that Jesus, through being the Word, experienced a unique intimacy with God the Father from the very beginning. He's saying that Jesus is oriented toward God, that they experience this continual, face-to-face, perfect, joyous intimacy in relationship from the beginning of time. And I highlight that because that reality is going to keep showing up throughout this entire book, that Jesus will talk about his unique relationship with the Father and show us that that is actually the basis of his authority. But also, he will invite us into that relationship. That as he talks about this intimacy that he gets to enjoy with the Father, that's not just reserved for him and him alone. But if you are in Christ, if you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, you get to experience that same type of intimacy with the Father. Now, the third aspect I want to point out that John shows us about who Jesus is, is that Jesus is eternally God. He's eternally God. We've already kind of touched on this um, in some way, but John explicitly says in that last phrase of verse 1, and the word was God. Now again, no other gospel but John explicitly identifies Jesus as God, and yet the meaning of this phrase is that the word was God both in essence and in character. Okay, so in who Jesus was and who Jesus is, and also in the works and the words of Jesus. Both in his essence and character, he was God in every way. That though different and distinct from God the Father, he was still God from the very beginning and did not cease being God when he came down to earth. And John highlights that because he intends for us to read the entirety of this gospel through the lens of verse 1. That everything Jesus does, everything that Jesus says, it is the very words and works of God himself. If you look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we see the same thing show up here. It says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of of his power. And so Jesus, part of his goal in coming to earth was to make the invisible God visible. That you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus, you study Jesus in the Gospels. Like if you feel like Jesus is too abstract, he's too distant in your life, look at Jesus in the Gospels. He is the exact representation of who God is and all that God actually is. That Jesus is God and has always been God. Fourthly, the fourth aspect of Jesus that John wants us to know is that Jesus is the creator of the universe. He's the creator of the universe. In verse 3, he states that all things were made through him, referring to Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. You know, this idea of Jesus being the creator, this is a consistent theme uh, throughout the New Testament. We see it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, that for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In fact, the very next verse says that in him, all things hold together. 
In other words, every atom is held together by the power of Jesus' word. And we see this power. We see Jesus as the creator to show up all throughout this gospel. We're going to see Jesus calm storms. The elements of weather listen and obey to Jesus. We're going to see Jesus heal that which is broken. He's going to heal different diseases that could not be healed otherwise. We're going to see Jesus do all kinds of miracles because he is the creator and all power and all authority come from him. Part of the purpose why I think John is, is showing us that Jesus is the creator, it's because of what we later see in the gospel of what Jesus eventually does. See, John is trying to blow us away with the reality that the one who created heaven and earth is the one who came and died in the place of his creation. That John wants us to stun us with that reality here in verse 1. That the one who, who created the, the, the whips that last, Jesus, that last upon Jesus' body, Jesus was the creator of that. That as Jesus was, was being beaten by those Roman soldiers, Jesus was the one who created those fists that beat Jesus' face. That even the, the nails that were driven into Jesus' hands and his feet, Jesus was the creator of. That the wood that, that was part of the cross that Jesus hung upon, that Jesus later died upon, Jesus was the creator of. And even his whole purpose his whole purpose for coming was to die in the place of his creation who rebelled against him and sinned against him so that we can be made right with him. Look, he wants to just stun us with the humility and the love of this creator who holds every atom together yet bled and died for your sins so you can be made right with him. Man, this is, this is stunning here in the beginning because we know what happens at the end. We know that he gets up on a cross. And yet we see the bigness of who God actually is. And look, if Jesus has the power to be the creator, if he can calm storms, if he can heal that which is broken, don't you know that he is intimately aware of the brokenness that's in your life today? Don't you know that Jesus has the power to calm the storms that you find yourself in here today in the season of life that you're in? Did you know that the creator of the universe who knows every inch of your heart, who knows everything that you're going through, not only cares, but is actively involved in bringing redemption and hope and healing? That there is nothing too hard for Jesus to do. He is the creator and the redeemer of all. Well, not only that, but the fifth thing that I want us to see about who Jesus is, is that Jesus is eternally life-giving that he came to give us life. Verse 4, John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, life here does not refer to the physical uh, life, but refers to the spiritual and, of course, the eternal life. This is, again, a, a dominant theme running throughout John's writings. The eternal life has no beginning. It has no end because it finds its source in Jesus himself. And this is something that Jesus came to give to us. If you notice here, John moves pretty quickly from life and starts talking about light. He says that the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Of course, he's not talking about physical light like Genesis 1 does, but light is part of the life that was in Jesus Christ. This is important to know that 
For John, light and life are equivalent expressions for salvation throughout his gospel. By doing so, John actually provides a helpful definition, understanding of what salvation and this eternal life is all about. All throughout this gospel, salvation for John has everything to do with revelation, has everything to do with with knowledge, has everything to do with what the light of Christ is shining upon. This book is is about revelation. John uh, chapter 17, verse 3, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, gives us an example of this. Jesus is praying, and he says, this is eternal life. This is salvation, that they may know you, the only true God, and him whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. And so he says, look, this is salvation. This is eternal life through the revelation of Jesus Christ, that they may know you and believe in the one with whom you have sent. That Jesus came to give life and life to the fullest by revealing himself as the light of men. And I love how he introduces this idea of revelation for us. That verse 1, we have Jesus as the word, so we have audible revelation. And then verse 5, we have this visible revelation as Jesus being the light. And look, as I close this morning, one of the things that I hope that we experience today, one of the things that I'm praying for is that we understand our desperate need for the revelation of Jesus into the darkness of our own lives. I hope that as we travel through this book, that Jesus would expose those areas of our life that are in hiding, those areas of our life that might be in darkness, that feel hopeless, and that the light of Christ through being the eternal life would shine upon that and bring us hope bring us healing, and bring us freedom and restoration that we've never had before. We desperately need Jesus, who is the light of the world, to shine into our lives so that we can see Jesus for who he really is. Look, as I I close this morning, I just want to give us maybe 30 seconds or 60 seconds just to reflect on this question today. What aspects of your life do you need the light of Christ to shine upon? What areas of your life might be filled with darkness, without hope? Maybe it's a marriage today. Maybe it's a child that you're trying to parent and you feel hopeless. Maybe it's a situation at work. Maybe it's a health concern or some type of profound disappointment that you're going through. But what aspect of your life do you need Jesus to enter into and be the light of life that he promises to bring you? I just want to give you a couple of minutes to just wrestle with that question and invite Jesus into that area of your life as we embark on this journey throughout the Gospel of John. God, as we close our time here this morning, we thank you for these first couple of verses of John 1 and the deep theology that we find in here. God, we thank you for the high view of Christ that John communicates through your word. We thank you that we see Jesus lifted up as the pre-existent one, as the creator of the universe, as the light of men. And Lord, I pray as we close today, Lord, many of us are going to walk out of this room and we're going to be continuing to carry the burdens of life with us. Lord, some are experiencing pressures from work, pressures from family, from marriage, from parenting. 
Some are experiencing just wrestling through disappointment or temptation. And God, we desperately need the light of life, Jesus Christ himself, to invade our lives and to invade our hearts and bring hope and healing. So God, I pray that Christ would be all that he is to us and that he would, Lord, just continue to conform us into his likeness. So God, I pray as we walk out of here, Lord, that you would give us, Lord, a pursuit of Christ in our day in and day out lives. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.